In the construction business and can't find what you need, Quality Supply and Tool has served Hoosiers for over a quarter of a century. Tom Hawk is the branch manager of the Indy location on South Harding Street. We've always been big on keeping our shelves fully stocked of inventory of industrial-grade tools, concrete, masonry products, as well as the necessary accessories to help get the job done. You don't have it, you can't sell it. Our experience allows us to help with getting the pros as well as the weekend pro taken care of. Quality Supply and Tool also has locations in Bloomington, Lafayette, and Jeffersonville to help you think outside the box. Store. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. You know what that means, that sound, the intro, the music, means a couple of things. Number one, it means Eddie Garrison's flying the controls for us tonight at the fan headquarters. 93.5107.5, the fan here on Monument Circle in downtown Indianapolis. It also means that engines are in action, so to speak, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at 16th and Georgetown. Good evening to you. My name is Jake Quarry. Mike Thompson joined us just a second here. want to get you caught up to speed, pardon the pun, on what's going to take place tomorrow at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway because it is bright and early and it is busy tomorrow for the schedule out at IMS. 9.35 in the morning, so coming up just over 13 hours from now, it is the Pennzoil 150 presented by Advance Auto Parts, Xfinity practice and I'm telling you what if you have not seen the Xfinity cars on the road course it's something because yes there was a lot of concern I think a couple years ago when it was announced that the road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway would be be used for this weekend as to the size of the cup cars and how they would manage to navigate through that road course and the answer is in a pretty exciting fashion but the Xfinity cars in general Uh, It's almost like it's custom made because that track is perfect for too wide and a little bit of banging for those cars to navigate through. So it should be a lot of fun to watch the practice. Then at 10.05, it is going to be qualifications for the Pennzoil 150. That is a 55-minute session that begins tomorrow, 10.05 in the morning. Then 11.35 until 12.35, it is the Cup Boys that go out onto the track. As a matter of fact, they have a 30-minute practice session. That is then followed by at 12.35 until 1.30 qualifying. So they go straight from practice into the qualifying. Then the IndyCar series says thanks for keeping things busy and let's see what happens now with our rubber matching your rubber onto the racetrack because at 2 o'clock it is the Gallagher Grand Prix. That is the IndyCar series, the NTT IndyCar series event that will take place on the 14-turn 2.439-mile road course of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 2 o'clock tomorrow, Gallagher Grand Prix. Then at 5.10 p.m., the introductions for the NASCAR Xfinity drivers. And at 5.30, Green Flag Falls for the Pennzoil 150 presented by Advance Auto Parts. So plenty of action tomorrow at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Plenty of opportunity for you to see great practice qualifying and racing activity at IMS. And as I had mentioned, if they are running at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, that means that we are doing Beyond the Bricks. 
This is the show where we take a look back at the history of the drivers, the names, the faces, those beyond just those who have taken the checkered flag at IMS over the course of history. So without further ado, after a long delay, Mike Thompson joins me now, who of course has the audio archives and is himself a historian of the Speedway. Mike, here it is once again, going to be a busy weekend at IMS. Definitely looking forward to all the different action. And, you know, I always say uh, when I have the opportunity to be with uh, Greg Rakestraw on the weekends, it's, you know, great value for the fans, you know, to be able to see the the cup cars, the Xfinity cars and the Indy cars the same weekend. So definitely great value for uh, for the fans all weekend. One of the things that may take place tomorrow is we should all, I guess, gather tomorrow if we're at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And I'm saying this, you know, figuratively, not necessarily literally. But when it comes to paying respects to those who have blazed the path, those that have shined the spotlight on racing, those that have catapulted it into the American landscape and culture, and those that have won in essentially every form of racing in which they have tried their hand. And we've talked about plenty of those this week. You know, earlier this week, we heard from Cale Yarborough. We've heard from Johnny Rutherford talking about their efforts out at Indianapolis Mike, the reality is tomorrow we are going to welcome into a very exclusive club Indianapolis 500 winners to live to the age of 90. And Parnelli Jones will join that list tomorrow. I think we should collectively all get together with our favorite cake from Taylor's Bakery or wherever it might be and blow out 90 candles to celebrate one of the great champions in auto sports history. I completely agree. I mean, you you know, you can't do any better than Parnelli Jones. He's one of the, the truly great drivers, but great people. Uh, he's, you know, I've been lucky to know him a little bit uh, through our friend Steve Shunk, and he's just he's just a fabulous person. And I, I agree, we should all take time on Saturday to uh, you know to to think about Parnelli, be, you know, turning ninety. I, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that that uh, you know Parnelli will be ninety years old because I think of him as you know that guy you know, driving the turbine or that guy driving Calhoun. But, uh, you know, very, very happy for Parnelli to be turning 90 on Saturday, for sure. Louis Meyer is the other Indy 500 winner that lived to the age of 90. Parnelli Jones will be celebrating that birthday tomorrow. So let's talk a little bit about Parnelli Jones. One thing I can say for certain, um, he will love watching the Indy cars out on the racetrack tomorrow, Mike, because any time that cars are racing on Firestone, that is music to his ears. There's no question. I mean, he had, uh, you know, his own Firestone dealerships that people may recall that, you know, Parnelli Jones Firestone and, and those stickers, uh, those kind of ubiquitous stickers. I, I got my stones from Parnelli Jones. So, yeah, he, he's been very, very connected to Par, uh, Firestone over the years. You know, when you look at Parnelli Jones in his career, and I think he has had, Mike, if you look statistically, and we've talked about this certainly plenty of times in the month of May, and obviously, he is a 500 winner. But I don't know that you would find a driver that within the you know three to five year window of their apex was more dialed in and more in tune in terms of accomplishments, whether it be you know 61 rookie of the year, co-rookie of the year, granted, wins it in 63. But Mike, statistically speaking, his career in particular at Indianapolis goes far beyond just those two accolades. He was as dominant as anybody over a stretch that you will find in IMS history. Completely agree with you. I mean, the fact is, I mean, you know, Roger Ward, you know, I 
talked to Roger Ward several times, and he said that Parnelli was the moral winner of 1962. I mean, Roger Ward won the race, but he said, hey, you know, that was Parnelli's race. Parnelli should have won that race, basically. Uh, you know, Parnelli had some late, uh, you know, problems in Calhoun that, that stopped Parnelli from winning the race. But, you know, Parnelli could have won 61. He could have won 62. He did win 63. Should have won 67. Uh, you know, he finished second in uh, in 65. So, as you're saying, just a dominant figure. I mean, he came on the scene from the time he, from the time he came on the scene in Indianapolis, just dominated. And then, you know, very brief career, but dominant for that brief career. Parnelli Jones made seven starts in the Indianapolis 500. He led in five of those races for 492 total laps. That is eighth all time. And of course, the win, as we talked about. But Mike, one of the interesting things, I think a lot of people, when they think of Parnelli, they think of probably three things in no particular order. The IMS and open-wheel dominance, the fact that his name is really Rufus Parnelli Jones, which has become, you know, obviously uh, a pretty common thing that rolls off the tongue to people. Um, and the fact that, as we talked about, he had the Firestone dealership and, you know, the the, the big hat when he won the race that, that blew away. And, you know, there are a lot of legendary stories about him. But one of the things that perhaps people don't recall or talk about enough is the fact that over the course of his career, he ran over 30 races in the cup side of things, including more than just a couple of wins. So Parnelli Jones is one of those drivers that if it was a steering wheel and it was attached to four tires, he was going to find a way to race it. There's no question about it. And in fact, we have a, a clip coming up where he kind of, it's funny because he kind of downplays his career. He talks about, you know, when he was driving for Vel Melitich, who ended up being, you know, his partner in Vel's Parnelli Jones. But he was kind of talking about in this clip, he's, you know, well, we, we, we ran together, but we really didn't do that well in NASCAR. And, you know, he before the before the time he even ran his first championship race, Parnelli Jones had won three NASCAR races by then. So, you know, he kind of downplays that that uh, aspect of his career. But, I mean, he had a great NASCAR career. I mean, he, he had four wins in the Cup Series and only, as you said, I think 37 starts. And he had three wins before he even ran a championship race. And he ran in the Daytona 500 before he ever ran in the Indianapolis 500. He's another one of those guys, uh, like we talked about with Johnny Rutherford, you know, that you could win a lot of trivia questions, uh, you know, trivia games with, you know, did they run in the Indianapolis 500 first or the Daytona 500 first? Parnelli ran the Daytona 500 before he ever ran the Indianapolis 500. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. He had a, he had a much better nascar career than i think uh, he gets credit for and i mean he's a multiple nascar winner he began his stock car career again talking about over 30 races that he ran the best finish that he finished in points and keep in mind you're, you're coming in and out 33rd in 1958 but he began his career in 1956 and it lasted until 1970 intermittently when it comes to stock cars but all told four wins 11 top tens three poles in his nascar career here is the man who turns 90 tomorrow rufus parnelli jones talking about his nascar career it was a lot of fun i mean uh, you know i actually came out of nascar really for before i came to indycar race and i'd run a lot ran a lot of west coast races for vel my you know, later became my partner and uh, we'd run uh, uh, and on the West Coast, and you know, and I actually went to Darlington, nineteen fifty-six, seven, and eight. When, when uh, 
you know, before Daytona or anything like that. And uh, we didn't do very well down there. We run good, but uh, never finished anyway. So, but uh, I've had a, you know, I, I had a lot of fun driving stock cars. And of course, I did finally win the USAC Stock Car Championship in 1964 here when when USAC had a big. Uh, big organization in the stock cars as well as NASCAR at the time. And uh, so and I did Pikes Peak, you know, too, with the Mercury and stock car and the stock car division. So uh, I had a lot of fun doing that. And I'm kind of guy I like to see what's on the other side of the hill. So I think that kind of explains why I went to Pikes Peak and why I did Baja and a lot of the other different things I did. And, of course, at Pikes Peak in 1963, Parnelli Jones broke the stock car speed record at the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. And, again, as I had mentioned, his first win coming in 1957 out in the state of Washington, his final win coming at Riverside in 1967, talking about in his stock car career. But, Mike, the reality is this. It's interesting to think that Parnelli Jones, as dominant as he was in anything that he drove, that there would be racetracks that weren't always to his liking. And maybe as a driver, he didn't speak that mind. I can't speak to that. I wasn't covering it back then. But he has since talked about some of the tracks that weren't necessarily of his favorite, correct? Yeah, one of the things when I had a chance to sit down and talk to him, I wanted to ask him that question because I was interested. I mean, Parnelli drove at a lot of different places, obviously. A lot of, you know, dirt ovals, uh, you know, obviously some paved tracks as well. But, uh, you know, what I was interested in knowing about was, you know, hey, you you drove in Indianapolis and you drove in you know Milwaukee and some of these places, but was there any place that you just didn't like? You know, is there something you looked at on the schedule that you didn't like? And there was one particular track he immediately said he didn't like, which didn't surprise me because it's the same track that Roger Ward notoriously hated this place. So I wasn't terribly surprised when he answered the question the way he did. Well, I never liked Langhorn because it was a round circle and it had a place called Puke Hollow, and that's a good name for it because a lot of a couple of race drivers I know got killed there while I was there. And uh, but it was a round circle on dirt, and it was kind of had a one end was kind of low and where the water drained off, and it was real boggy. And when you went through there, you better have that right rear spinning, or it, it would bicycle you right out of the ballpark. And a lot of drivers are lost their lives there. And, got hurt and stuff like that but I kind of dreaded running there because it was so dangerous but I liked uh, New Bremen and you know and all some of the dirt cracks that we ran with the with the sprint cars and uh, of course the high banks and stuff like that I you can't say I enjoyed them so much I could hold my breath for 30 laps but but it, it was enjoyable and I was fortunate that I could win there too you know Langhorn's interesting because, Mike, as you heard him mention, talking about a one-mile essentially circle, minimal banking in Langhorn. So that probably was, you know, I would imagine it was like being on one of those tin cup or whatever they called it, like, you know, witch's brew rides at King's Island, where all of a sudden you're just kind of spinning in a circle. One can only imagine. But he talked about those that were fatally injured there. That's where Jimmy Bryan, as you and I have talked about on many of occasion, um, died in 1960 that track closed in 1971 so parnelli jones was running there uh really after that track had opened in the 20s in the mid 20s little did anybody know at that time mike that he was running there towards the end of the career for langhorn that's right and and parnelli jones his second championship race it was only the second championship race he ever did was the race that jimmy bryan was fatally injured in so he was in that race and jimmy bryan was in that race 
because Roger Ward flat out said, I'm not, I'm not running there. He didn't want to run Langhorn anymore. He absolutely hated Langhorn. And so Jimmy Bryan took the ride and Roger Ward tried to talk him out of it and said, Hey, you know, do you really want to do this? You had, you said you were stopped running on dirt. You weren't going to run on dirt anymore. Do you really want to go do this? And, and Jimmy Bryan lost his life there. And so uh, there were there were a lot of people who didn't particularly care for Langhorne. You know, the, the interesting thing about back then, the mentality, and I'm not saying this doesn't exist today, Mike. We have seen, unfortunately, still drivers that are driving today who saw colleagues, friends, former teammates that were fatally injured in races. It was obviously more common then. But I think one of the things when we talk about the true heroes of racing back then and as well today – but it's just that mindset to be able to understand that those who were fatally injured had within them that same drive and passion for the sport where, quite frankly, drivers would say to themselves, you know what, the show must go on. And I know that that sounds callous, Mike, and I understand to those that are not around racing that it sounds, at times, it's with, you know, you're incredulous when you hear that reaction. But the reality is that's that's the way it was back then, and Parnelli Jones certainly... That might have been why he didn't like Langhorne, but it didn't stop him from running on it because that was just what was in the blood of those guys back then. Yeah, there's there's no question about it. And I, I've always been interested to, to hear who's willing to be candid and things like that, Parnelli, and, and even today. I mean, like Ryan Newman hate, hates Talladega. I mean, you can just tell when they go to Talladega and they do some of that, you know, restrictor plate, uh, plate racing, you know, you could tell he doesn't enjoy that racing. So I'm always interested to hear who's willing to be candid about particular tracks they don't care for, um, you know, for, for different reasons. So, you know, different a different era when Parnelli, you know, Parnelli, they were losing friends. You know, we just had the anniversary a couple of weeks ago of, of Black Sunday where, I mean, if you can gather and, and fathom this, that, you know, three out of the 33 Indianapolis 500 drivers lost their lives in one day at two different tracks. So if you can think about that, one eleventh of the field from the Indianapolis 500 were killed in, in accidents in one day. Um, so it, it's, it was such a terrible time, you know, racing was back then. You know, you could just lose, you know, three different drivers in one day at two different tracks. So, um, you know, these guys were, were very tough. Uh, you know, both on the track and off for having to deal with the fact that they were losing friends. I mean, there's just no if, if, and, or but about it. When we come back, speaking of Parnelli Jones, yes, he did take the 1963 Indianapolis 500-mile race and one that there was a strange coincidence that happened during the time in which he was running that later happened to him in retirement. I'll explain what I'm talking about as we continue to take a look back at the man that turns 90 tomorrow, Parnelli Jones, on this episode of Beyond the Bricks. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. This is Beyond the Bricks on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. These powerful race cars attempting to qualify command the crowd's immediate attention. But a glance around the oval also takes in vital stationary equipment like the track signal lights and official timing clock. 
These important facilities, working flawlessly, are powered by the same source that starts so many of these race cars. Dependable Willard Batteries, the official battery here at the Indianapolis Speedway. Sam Hanks, director of racing and former 500 winner, puts it this way. Willard's built for the big job it's got to do here at the Speedway. To start those high horsepower engines, you need a battery with some built-in muscle. Willard's got it in spades. I always use Willard batteries, and I haven't been let down yet. Planning a vacation? Remember, your car battery is going to work the whole trip. If it's weak, replace it now. Insist on Willard, the battery the pros depend on. I think the thing, Mike Thompson, about that ad is just how natural and convincing Sam Hanks sounds, right? We always use Willard batteries in everything we do. <laughs> See page two. I, look, Sam Hanks was a great guy. I like I like Sam Hanks a lot. But that, uh, Mike that Thompson. Was not, <laughs> that was not, not as uh, smooth as Reed. Uh, you know what? Obviously, one of the great moments is him and is Sam Hanks in victory lane, and you can see the gregarious nature of the the, the driver and the popularity of him. But uh, the energy level, it's a good thing the batteries had the energy. Let's say that. Uh, Jake Quarry, Mike Thompson here, Eddie Garrison helping us out. It is Beyond the Bricks on a Friday night. Hope you are set for an exciting weekend and a great weekend of racing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Tonight, we're talking about the guy who turns 90 tomorrow. As a matter of fact, if you're just joining the program, he will become only the second Indianapolis 500 winner to reach the age of 90. And that, of course, Louis Meyer, the first. Parnelli Jones, who we're talking about, and Parnelli Jones, um, 492 laps led over the course of his career at Indianapolis in seven races. And I think he is most known for a couple of things when it comes to at Indianapolis, Mike. One of those would be the dominating fashion in which he won in 1963. And the other, quite frankly, is the fact that there were races that got away from him really at no fault of his own. Completely agree with you. Yeah, as we said, in 1962, uh, should have won the race, had the uh, brake issue. I mean, he got hit by a rock uh, in the middle of the, you know, right in his face, basically, in, in 1961 and was was pouring blood out of his goggles. I mean, just weird things happened to him. But yeah, I mean, no fault of his own at all. And, and some of these things, and of course, the... Uh, we'll talk later on about the turbo. Parnelli Jones, who is the driver, by the way, that broke the 150-mile-an-hour barrier at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, was no stranger to speed, no stranger to dominant fashion and dominant cars. He started on pole in 1963. And as a matter of fact, it was one of those years where when you really looked at it, you know, he takes the lead on lap two and then leads essentially 61 straight laps. And then the second half of the race was completely dominant, leading from lap 96 to lap 200. But, Mike, that is not to say that the 1963 Indianapolis 500 for Parnelli Jones was one that did not involve a certain amount of stress for him. There was a lot of stress for him. Uh, you know, he was, he was as you said, dominating. Um, you know, really, Jim Clark and, and his rookie year was really the only car really challenging him. But there was an oil situation that happened. And uh, the problem with, with that is that, you know, and, and I say this every time we talk about this, you know, it would have been a tragedy had Parnelli Jones not won the Indianapolis 500, you know, with a travesty, tragedy, tragedy, whatever word you want to use for it, because he was one of the greatest drivers of all time. Uh, dominant driver should have won multiple Indianapolis 500s. It would have been extremely sad had he not won 
an Indianapolis 500, and especially had he lost one because of a penalty situation. But the, the rules were the rules. And they announced the rules in the driver's meeting that cars leaking oil will be black flagged. No if ands, or buts. And Parnelli Jones's car was leaking oil, and there's no question about it. It was absolutely leaking oil on the track, and he was never black flagged. So the rules were not followed that day. Um, so you can you can make your own interpretations and your own how you feel about that. Um, but how I always say and talk about this is the rule was hard and fast. Cars leaking oil will be black flagged. The rule was not followed that day. So um, I had a good conversation with Parnelli many years later about that, which we'll hear a little bit about uh, coming up in a few minutes. The coincidence here being that a handful of years ago, as they always do in the Indianapolis 500 before the race, one of the great traditions is some of the older cars, the parade of champion cars that takes place, and you can salute maybe your favorite car. I know one year seeing Emerson Fittipaldi's 1989 winner going past was a thrill for me because I remember that when I was in high school and seeing that car, and etc. And one of those cars in which they obviously do that is the Marmon Wasp, that in which Ray Haroon took to victory in the very first Indianapolis 500. And the Marmon Wasp was brought out. I don't know if people realize this, but the cars that are displayed by the Indianapolis Motor Speedway are always put into a running condition before they are put on display. So the Marmon Wasp was going to take a ceremonial lap before the Indianapolis 500, and Parnelli Jones was the driver that was going to drive it. And lo and behold, I don't know if it was the Marmon Wasp's respect to history at Indianapolis or just lady luck or the fact that you know you had a car that was a century old but mike what happened but of course it decided to leak some oil right yeah a rod went through the crankcase on it and uh that's obviously not what you want to have happen on a century old car so uh very very sad situation happened that day with the uh with the boss but back to 1963 parnelli jones dominating day but as mike had mentioned one that was precarious at times at best due to that leaking oil. Freddie has some comments about Parnelli Jones. I'm a little worried about the looks of the tail on Parnelli Jones because the oil tank is mounted between the wheels on the left side of that machine, a big taper teardrop tank. Now there's a little bit of oil seeping out of the body panel of the tail on his car and I noticed it's uh, progressively been getting a little bit worse. However, this can be oil seepage out of the uh, out of the gearbox as well. I'm just hoping that it isn't anything serious. It hasn't uh, deterred him as far as speed is concerned, but it's something that could be occurring that we're not too sure of. Now, Mike, not to bring up a scoring controversy from some 60 years ago, but in terms of that off the engine starting to leak a little bit of oil and the ruling that you had talked about, that that meant it should have been a black flag, was there any sort of indiscretion that was allowed on the amount of oil that was, I guess, necessary in order to be black flagged? Was there any criteria that was, at the time, explained as to why he would be allowed with a drip as opposed to a full leak whatever it might be was there anything subjective that would have allowed for what seemed to be a gray area in the ruling well the only thing that was subjective was that uh, his car owner jc agajanian did a really good job politicking with uh, harlan fangler the chief steward um there wasn't anything gray area i mean the, the rule was the rule if you your car is leaking oil you will be black flagged. 
what Agajanian suggested is that the the leak was coming from the externally mounted tank and that the leak had gone below the line where the crack was and that it wasn't going to continue to leak. However, drivers kept saying later, Eddie Sachs spun out right at the end of the race and said he was right behind Parnelli when he spun out and that Parnelli was still putting oil on the track, you know, two laps to go, one lap to go. If you listen to the radio broadcast, as Parnelli's coming down to get the checker, Eddie Sachs is spinning off the track. So it's a situation where uh, it looked like Parnelli was actually going to get black flagged. And, and Sid, if you listen to the radio broadcast, is kind of doing play-by-play on that with with uh, Freddie Agamation. They're saying, okay, well, now look, there's this powwow going on. And and J.C. Agajanian successfully argues that, hey, this oil leak has – we know we're leaking oil – but it's gone below the line of the, you know, this crack and you can't black flag our guy from first place for this. And so right after politicking, JC Agajanian actually runs from the pit lane all the way up to the master control tower, to the radio booth to basically then politic on the air to say, Hey, our guy, he's dominating, he's leading. You should never let him be black flagged for this. And, you know, it ended up that, he wasn't. He was never black flagged, obviously, and, and went on to win the race. Truth be told, Mike, it, it it almost sounds like a Wiley Coyote move. You know what I mean? Like you you leave a little bit of slick behind you seems to be an unfair advantage. But nonetheless, Parnelli Jones goes on to win the 1963 race. But Parnelli himself has spoken about the exact thing of which we're discussing, the oil leak of 1963. Well, first of all, it was pretty close to the end of the race, and uh, all of a sudden I came out of turn two, and gee, I about spun it. You know, oil, oil came out on my left rear tire, and I mean, it was shocking. I mean, uh, you know, it was like a, like a instant thing that happened, and uh, so then I slowed down, and you know, and went to a couple more corners and tried to build my confidence back and and it seemed to get better and better and better and so uh finally it obviously i didn't know at the time but the oil level had dropped down below the crack that was in the tank and once it had did that the only time it even had any coming out at all was when i backed off at the end of the straightaway a little puff of smoke would hit the oil would hit the exhaust pipe and uh that was it and toward the end of the race i run one of the fastest laps i run all day so even though it was so oily i was uh, really disturbed when guys like Sachs and mccluskey and all that i said that they spun in my oil and and uh, and i had another altercation with Sachs uh, the next day at the autolite luncheon and he called me uh, you know, said he spun my oil, and I tried, Eddie, you had a lot of problems. You wheel come loose, and I think that's what caused you to spin. And and he, they pushed him off and got him going again, and the wheel came off. But uh, he said, he, no, he spun the oil, he's making a big deal of it. And I says, uh, and, and I said, well, I, you know, I, I said, I'd have bust you in the mouth, you know, because he kept mouthing off. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, he said it one time too many, and I let him have it. So, and then he ran up into his room and put a black flag in his mouth and didn't show up at the banquet. So, and then press picked it up and stuff like that. But Eddie and I later were very good friends, and you have little altercations like that once in a while. 
If they had a black flagged me uh, that close to the end of the race, I wouldn't have come in anyway. We'd argued about it after the race was over. Fastest lap of the race. Got a little overzealous there for Parnelli Jones. Came on lap 114, turned in by Parnelli Jones. So he was right in the fact that in the second half of the race, he was turning in very good laps. In the end, in his third start at Indianapolis, by a margin of just over 33 seconds, Parnelli Jones won the 1963 Indianapolis 500-mile race. And there's the checkered flag for Parnelli Jones, the winner of the 1963 500-mile race. Parnelli Jones from Torrance, California, wins the 500. You know, Parnelli Jones is one of those that uh, still has been around the Speedway. We talked about the fact that he has been a dignitary, he has been a great gentleman and he has been a great ambassador for the world's greatest race throughout the course of his life and again turning 90 tomorrow Uh, we come back one more look around and sounds from parnelli jones winner of the 47th running of the indianapolis 500 mile race whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. This is Beyond the Bricks on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Jake Quarry, Mike Thompson, Eddie Garrison here as well. This is Beyond the Bricks, 93.5-1075. The fan will get you set with tomorrow's schedule coming up here in just a couple of minutes. Been talking about Parnelli Jones, who tomorrow will celebrate 90, the 90th birthday for the 1963 Indianapolis 500-mile winner. Mike Thompson, reality is this. When you grow up in Indianapolis, or in your case, grow up in Ohio and are closely connected to the Indianapolis 500-mile race, there are those cars in which you always hear about. I always heard about the Marmon Wasp as a kid because it was the first winner. I always heard about the Johnny Lightning because in my childhood it was fairly recent that it had been on track and people loved the look of it. And then, of course, there's the car that everybody loves to talk about the first time they heard it when in reality, Mike, they didn't hear much of anything. And I'm talking about one of the wonder cars that Andy Granatelli brought to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Yeah, the turbine. What I think is interesting about the turbine, and maybe you'll agree with this, Jake, I think Parnelli is more famous for driving the turbine in a year he didn't win than the year he did win in Calhoun. I think people think of him in the turbine. What do you think? I think if you polled, and by that I mean P-O-L-L-E-D, I don't mean physically grasp at, if you polled 100 people at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the month of May that said that they were race fans or historians, I'll bet you more than 50 would assume that he won the 500 in the turban. Yeah, I believe that. I, I think he's more closely associated, honestly, with the turban than the car he won. I think that's which is interesting because I just it just goes to show what a what a smash and what a splash you know that that turban made as i guess what i'm trying to say what a splash it was it it truly was it was so revolutionary it was car number 40 it had as everybody always says it was the whoosh as it went past was the sound of the turban andy granatelli was of course the car owner that was able to put that package together for parnelli jones and as mike had just mentioned he is absolutely correct it became almost synonymous for Parnelli Jones of the cars that he ran at Indianapolis. Here is Parnelli on Andy Granatelli and that 1967 package that all came together. 
Well, Andy was a very domineering sort of a guy. I mean, he, you know, he he took the bull by the horns and, you know, made this. And he was, uh, he did a lot of things out in left field. I mean, the monkey suits that he came here with the STPs, things and stuff like that. And uh, he certainly played a great part in promoting the Indianapolis 500 with his promotions with STP. But uh, he was a real domineering man and... Uh, uh, you know, once during tire test, I drove the Novi and run faster than anybody had ever driven in it. The first time I was in it, ever in it, it was easy car to drive. Had a lot of straightaway power and stuff. And from that time on, he was uh, hounding me to drive the Novi. And uh, I would never drive the Novi. I was having trouble finishing the races with the car I was driving, let alone... You know, one that was having problems finishing. So uh, I would not do that, but that's why when he built the turbine, he called me up one day and says, you got to come over to Santa Monica. I want to show you something. So I went over there and saw the turbine car for the first time, and I figured it was one of those deals never going to work or whatever. And uh, so I I said, well, okay, bring it out to Phoenix. I'm going to test my own car over at Phoenix, and and we'll take a ride in and see what we think. And so, like I said, I was doing him, I thought I was doing him a favor, but he was really doing me a favor because, as it turned out, but the, uh, uh, you know, the more curious I got about uh, driving the car, uh, you know, the more I kept thinking about it, you know, and he kept calling me, wanting me to drive it. So I let a financial decision make that decision, and I had no idea that it was going to be as good it was, was race day. However, when I qualified the car, uh, I, you know, I run it obviously as fast as it would run, and, uh, uh, you know, and I was sixth position on the second row on the outside. And, but on race day, the, what happened... On race day, when all the top guys took that 10 or 15% nitro out and added 75 gallons of fuel in their car, they weren't able to run as quick as I could run because I had no nitro to put in or to take out of my car. I mean, I run just as fast uh, race day as I did qualifying, so to speak, because all the fuel in the turbine car was right in the center of the car, and it didn't affect it as much. And most people didn't give the car very much credit because of the handling ability of it, but it really handled well. And that's when they dropped the green flag. I just stuck it up in the gray around the outside and drove around everybody on the f- first corner except for uh, uh, Mario. And I caught him coming out of turn two, and he gave me the one lap sign, and and that was the end of it. But uh Everybody thought I was sandbagging, and of course, during the month of May, I had a lot of fun with that. But uh, you know, I kept telling uh, Foyt and and all that Gurney and all them guys. I said, "Well, tell me uh, how fast you're going to run on race day, because I want to know where to set the screw." <laughs> so I really had a lot of fun doing that, and people were sending me sandbags in the mail and stuff like that, and I had a lot of fun with it. You know, as Parnelli had mentioned at the start of the race, started sixth. By the end of the first lap, he was in the lead, led the first 51 laps of that race. And as Mike had mentioned, it wasn't even necessarily the visuals, which was something of that turbine, but also simply when she started up, the way it sounded. The one revolutionary car this year is the turbine, driven by Parnelli Jones. And since you won't hear it when the race is underway, here's what it sounds like when it starts and revs up to speed. It's just harder. Check fuel on. Got it. Get hold of this. All right, good. All right, check for oil pressure. 
We'll take RPM coming up. Let the RPM stabilize. Count. Two, three, four, five. Bingo. Oil pressure's up. Watch turbine in the temperature coming up. 400, 500, 600. That was the sound of the turbine experimental. What it does here today may have a great impact upon the future of auto racing. What it did in the race was lead 171 laps, but it was a bearing breaking on lap 196 that cost Parnelli Jones the race, and he blamed himself. You know, what I didn't know, I, if I'd have taken a little easier out of the pits with the turbine car, I'd have won hands down. But, so I have to blame myself for those things. But it just finally, just going down the back straightaway, it just finally was went into neutral. I mean, it was like taking the car out of gear. And, of course, it was a bearing in the quick change rear end that let go. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I, all, all that, the one thing about the turbine car had a lot of torque. It didn't have so much horsepower, but it had a tremendous amount of torque and it would accelerate and be in a four wheel drive car. It would hook up real hard coming out of the pits and, uh, and I didn't need to do that. You know what I mean? I needed to just have a little common sense and take it easy going out of the pits and the thing would have run hands down. Parnelli Jones, years later, would still perhaps not totally get over that 1967 loss. Well, I can best describe that by the next, uh, you know, I went to the banquet uh, the next evening or whenever that, and the next day I left to drive home back to Los Angeles. And uh, when I was went to leave town, it was like, leaving your house when you know you forgot something and you don't know what it is and it, that feeling went on for a long time and even when I came back the following year I had the same feeling and uh, it took me a while to get over that feeling that just like I left something there and uh, and I did there's that there's that picture of you in the spring of 68 um with Andy Granatelli, where Jim Clark is in the the wedge yeah. turbine yeah. about a few days before Jim Clark passed away, and you're you're back in the turbine, the the '67 turbine, and there's almost this look on your face like I'm in behind the wheel of this car again. You know, I mean, like it is. It's almost like you described like it's it's like I left something back there. Yeah. Right? You know that that trophy that's supposed to be on the back of that car. <laughs> where is it? You know. Yeah. Well, that was a real empty feeling that I had after the race, and even. For the next two or three years that I came to the Speedway, I, you know, it got better every year. But uh, uh, you get over things like that. I, it's, uh, you know, like losing one of your best friends or something. But Parnelli Jones, nineteen sixty-seven, would be his final Indianapolis five hundred mile effort. By the way, happy birthday tomorrow to Parnelli. Want to give you one more time the recap of the schedule for tomorrow at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Gates opening at 7 o'clock and then at 9.35 until 10.05 it is practice for the Pennzoil 150 presented by Advance Auto Parts. That is the Xfinity practice. Following that, 10.05 until 11 o'clock it is qualifications for the Xfinity cars. And then from 11.35 until 12.35, it's an hour-long practice for the Cup Series. The NASCAR Cup Series takes to the road course at Indianapolis for a one-hour practice, followed immediately by qualifying for the Verizon 200, which will, of course, run on Sunday. That qualifying is from 12.30 until 1.30. Gallagher Grand Prix, which is the IndyCar event, 
That race takes place at 2 o'clock tomorrow, and then following that at 5.30, it is the Pennzoil 150 presented by Advance Auto Parts. That is the Xfinity race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So full day of racing tomorrow, and amidst all of it, I guess a chance to simply say happy birthday to Pernelli Jones. Mike, a lot of fun. I know you'll be out there this weekend. We look forward to seeing you again tomorrow, as we did today at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But a lot of fun tonight, saluting one of the great champions at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Yeah, it was a good time. Happy birthday, Parnelli. Thanks for everything, buddy. So we will be back at it uh, again tomorrow on the racetrack at IMS. If you're going to be out there, be sure to say hi. For Eddie Garrison, Mike Thompson, I'm Jake Quarry. This has been Beyond the Bricks.